foothills of eastern Tennessee. A meeting is happening for the first time in about 30 years between a woman who shot her husband and the niece of the man who died. After the death of Vern Stordock in 1970, his wife Suzanne and his niece Dorothy met just one more time in a mental institution. Eventually, they drifted apart. They didn't see each other again until they met at a farm in Tennessee, in Suzanne's small bedroom, located in her daughter's house. Dorothy says she entered the room of a woman whose actions had consumed her for the last year, and sort of for decades. The room was cluttered with furniture and knickknacks. It was small, maybe 10 by 12. A wheelchair was folded up behind a door. Suzanne sat up on a single bed, a wooden one, which seemed to have an adjustable mattress or maybe a lot of pillows. There was a room divider folded up also. I remember Suzanne's long blonde hair, not much gray. She was sitting up on pillows, wearing a pink robe tucked in under a chenille bedspread. And I remembered her green eyes. I came into the room and there was a small dog, brown and white, wiry fur, jumped all over me. The dog's name was Holstein. It felt strangely familiar. I knew her so well when I was a child and in college, but I hadn't seen her for decades. And yet I was filled with anxiety because here was the woman who had confessed to murdering my uncle. What do I say? I looked around. I saw a few large books. Every surface had some white lace doilies on it, the kind my grandma used to crochet. All around me were pictures of Suzanne with an older man. That man was Suzanne's fifth and final husband. His name was Paul. Suzanne had nicknames for all her husbands. She called him the Keeper. Dorothy sits alone with a woman she had so many theories about, sits with so much anger. But she doesn't confront Suzanne for killing her uncle. You know, I went there wanting to know who murdered my uncle. My cousin Shannon and I had been trying to figure this out for years because there'd been rumors that David had been the shooter. And on that first visit, my only goal was to find out who shot Vernie. And I had this idea I was just going to walk in there and maybe after 45 minutes or an hour say, well, by the way, which one of you pulled the trigger? But it doesn't work that way. And as the hours wore on, I realized I might not get an answer. So instead, we talked about relatives. My relatives, the Stordocks. She knew my grandmother had died back in 1995 and also that my mother and stepfather were gone. But she didn't seem to know my brother had died in the 1980s. I asked about her youngest son, Danny, but she clearly did not want to talk about him or his suicide. 
Instead, they talked about the grand old house in Oregon and how beautiful it was. Not much risk there, I thought. Eventually, though, they came around to it. Dorothy brought up Vern. She wasn't particularly upset about the subject. Indeed, she was kind of glib. She told me, Oh, I think I'm the one who ended his life, if I remember correctly. There was another man, another older man, displayed in Suzanne's bedroom, as Dorothy remembers. I asked Suzanne about him. She said it was Abe Gast. Abe Gast, a former father-in-law who had left Suzanne a significant amount of money, who Dorothy believes may not have died of natural causes. Suzanne told me that she was in the hospital room with Abe the night he died. Welcome to Manslaughter. Suzanne and her daughter Donna invited Dorothy into their home when Dorothy presented herself as family, as someone seeking closure. But Dorothy acknowledges she was there on a mission. She says that she met, spoke, really interviewed Suzanne four separate times for a total of 14 hours. And according to Dorothy, their conversations were wide-ranging. Suzanne talked about spending time with Abe Gast when he was hospitalized. She made a big deal about how close she was with Abe and how his own family, especially his daughter, abandoned him. Suzanne told me a lot of things Abe had said, that his wife was not well-balanced, things like that, that he was not close to one of his daughters, who came to his hospital room near the end. She asked for $20,000 to buy a house. Abe said no, and the daughter never saw him again. On the morning after Abe died, that daughter called Suzanne because she knew Suzanne had been in the hospital room that night. Suzanne told me she considered lying to her to be nice, to tell the woman that her father had asked about her before he died. But instead, she just hung up the phone on Abe's daughter. Suzanne said, the milk of human kindness curdled in her veins. Suzanne did visit Abe Gast often. He would call her and ask her to visit. He'd say he was having trouble breathing. Suzanne visited him and helped him to the bathroom even sneak drinks to him, brandy. That is part of why Dorothy suspects that Abe did not die of natural causes. It's just beyond coincidence that Suzanne inherited money off the deaths of men around her. John Briggs, who she had left 16 years earlier, died mysteriously and Suzanne produced an insurance policy. Suzanne was married to Irv Gast, by all accounts a deadbeat. Yet, conveniently, his dad died before the divorce. And there is Suzanne in his hospital room, not his daughter. There's no actual evidence that Suzanne killed Abe Gast. Suzanne told me she got a letter from Abe's roommate at the hospital telling her it was obvious that she loved Abe during her visits, even when she helped him on his forbidden trips to the bathroom. We know that Abe had a roommate for all or part of his hospitalization. Oh, I've been to many hospital rooms, and back in the 60s, there was usually a curtain separating the patients. She talks about sipping brandy with Abe. She certainly had the opportunity to poison him, and being orthodox, his family would never allow an autopsy. 
At the time, nobody questioned the nature of Abe's death. He was 78, in a hospital for a chronic health condition. Dorothy's suspicions are based on Suzanne's location, and also on a belief that Suzanne suffered from a specific psychological condition, one that Dorothy believes she observed during her four visits to Tennessee. I leaned down to kiss her cheek, She didn't seem to register any emotion. I could feel her watching me. Was I paranoid? But during the whole conversation, and the later ones, it was as if she was boring into my soul to figure me out and ask herself, why is she really here? According to Dorothy, Suzanne didn't show any remorse for shooting Vern Stordach. She made light of the killing, telling me how her shrink said murder was a healthier choice than suicide, and that in shooting Vern, she chose the healthiest. She'd laugh as she told me these stories, sitting in her room in Tennessee. There was a story about her attorney, Ken Orchard, telling her one time that Vern was stronger than her. Suzanne told me her response, and it chilled my blood. How can you say that? He's gone. I'm not. And she's saying this to me, his niece, sitting a few feet from her. There was no empathy, no remorse. That's probably what hurt me the most. Observations like this added up for Dorothy into a conclusion about Suzanne. I think Suzanne was a psychopath. To research psychopaths, Dorothy Marsick interviewed experts, including Tom Powell, a forensic psychologist. Well, psychopaths are are really very compelling, and they tell a great story, and they come in sometimes full of um, excitement and energy, and they're very skillful at, at manipulating us to believe that they want what they think we want. Powell used to run clinical services for Vermont's Department of Corrections. He didn't examine anyone in this story. He says sometimes psychopaths fake mental illness. Uh, In the criminal justice system, a lot of times being mentally ill can get you access to um, services or to um, a better deal. You can demonstrate great improvement by pretending to be pretty crazy one day and then slowly but persistently um, getting better the next. I want to introduce you to a man named Dr. Robert Hare a man who devoted his career to studying psychopaths. Most psychopaths aren't violent or criminal. Some become very successful, and most are men. Hare is now more than 20 years retired from the University of British Columbia. But in retirement, he has offered paid seminars about his theories. In a week-long course aimed at people who work in criminal justice, attendees have earned certification from his private company in the methods he developed to identify psychopaths. Knowing all of this, Dorothy decided to get certified herself. In the fall of 2015, Dorothy flew to Portland, Oregon, to earn certification from Hare in his methods for testing whether someone is a psychopath. Robert Hare is arguably the most respected expert in psychopathy, and he's developed this checklist. And he's an interesting guy. I met him in the certification program. And so I went to the certification program in Portland, Oregon. It was a whole week. There were 59 people, mostly prison experts and psychologists and district attorneys. 
I was allowed in as the only researcher. At the Portland Art Museum, in a large meeting room, Dorothy was one of 60 people who also included forensic attorneys, prison therapists, and other lawyers, people who worked in prisons or as expert witnesses in trials. Robert Hare's main contribution to the field of criminal psychology is a checklist. It's used to diagnose what some consider dangerous minds. Prisoners, mostly men. He doesn't talk about individual cases. He has worked to create treatment programs for criminal psychopaths. And he's afraid his methods will be misused. The seminar gave us a thorough background on what's called the Psychopathy Checklist Revised. The only way to get the checklist, really, is to go to certification class. It's got 20 items, which are to be scored 0, 1, or 2. Zero means that particular characteristic does not at all apply to the person you're considering. One means it somewhat applies. A two means the subject displays the characteristic strongly. The highest score on the 20-point checklist is 40. Scoring someone 26 to 30 or higher indicates they're a psychopath. Dorothy decided to use what's called the PCLR checklist to analyze Suzanne. Before I say more about that, Dr. David Hare's website contains a number of warnings about how this test should be used. The potential for harm is considerable if the PCLR is used incorrectly, or if the user is not familiar with the clinical and empirical literature pertaining to psychopathy. Clinicians should possess an advanced degree in the social, medical, or behavioral sciences, such as a PhD, EDD, or MD. Be registered with a local, state, or provincial registration body that regulates the assessment and diagnosis of mental disorders. Even though I'm certified in this, I have to say also I have a doctorate in organizational behavior, which is managerial psychology. I had some familiarity um, with the larger field of psychology. Have experience with forensic populations. So I want to share with you some of the measurements that I came up with after knowing Suzanne for almost 50 years and having a lot of interactions with her from the time I was 14 years old up through college and then more recently the four visits that I made to Tennessee to talk with her. The first criteria is glibness, superficial charm. When you first meet Suzanne, or even if you've known her for a while, she can be disarmingly charming and full of witty retorts, saying exactly what she knows you want to hear. Egocentric, grandiose sense of self-worth. I found a lot of um, evidence for this in, mm -hmm. the, in the interviews that I did with people. I mean, in an interview she did with me, because she'd talk about going to court and wearing a mink coat and how wonderful she looked in it. Pathological lying. One of the people I came in contact with was David Sturgeon, who had bought the mansion in Oregon, Wisconsin, from her. And she told him that the murder took place in the basement, that Vernie was down there threatening to kill himself, and she ran down to stop him, and the gun went off, and he died. But, of course, the, the murder took place upstairs. And then she also told Sturgeon that she'd been in prison for five years, even though she'd only been in jail two days. Cunning or manipulation. Suzanne's brother told me that one of her biggest pleasures was fooling people. Lack of remorse or guilt. Even if she had a psychotic break, which one could say maybe it was like an accidental shooting, 
the research I've seen on that is that uh, people who accidentally kill someone are really overcome with so much guilt that they have a hard time functioning in life. Emotionally shallow, sometimes called shallow effect. I mean, she did speak without much affect. It was a pretty flat voice, uh, except when she was putting on the charm. I give her a two. Callous, lack of empathy. I rarely felt any emotion coming out of Suzanne during our 14 hours together. And I'm pretty good at knowing what people are feeling, partly because I grew up in an alcoholic home. When I'd bring up subjects of my family, my uncle his daughter Shannon, or even her children and issues in their lives. Never, ever did I feel the least trace of empathy. I give her a two. Irresponsibility. My Aunt Maxine, she told me that uh, Suzanne never paid any attention to her kids. They were basically kick-around kids. And Suzanne's brother told me that... um, Suzanne's kids were really messed up. And one of Danny's friends, David Strode, kept talking about how nasty and foul and um, mean Suzanne was to Danny. Inability to accept responsibility for own actions. She murdered my uncle or was somehow involved in a cover-up. Did she want to pay for her crime? No, she got off on insanity, cashed in his life insurance took all his assets, and made sure his daughter, Shannon, got nothing. I give her a two. There are 11 more criteria. I think you see where this is going. Need for stimulation. I give her a two. Parasitic lifestyle. Two. Impulsivity. Two. Poor behavioral controls. I saw her as a very unstable personality who would just erupt like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. If she could have turned her neck, she would have. Two. Early behavioral problems. Two. Revocation of conditional release. Many short-term marital relationships promiscuous sexual behavior. All twos. Dorothy's overall score for Suzanne was 31 out of 40. And Dorothy's own observations are the basis for her evidence that Suzanne was a psychopath. Psychopath? It's a powerful term, especially when linked to murder, or multiple murders. So let's look at three women who could well meet the criteria of a psychopath. A mass murderer and a serial killer, women who had multiple marriages and committed murder. Let's meet Betty Newmar. Like Suzanne, she had five husbands, and she buried all of them. Husband number one was shot in the head in 1970, just like Vern. But unlike our story, the shooting happened 20 years after a divorce from Betty. Husband number two died mysteriously in 1950. Husband number three shot in 1964. At the time, people thought it was suicide. Husband number four shot in Betty's home in the 1980s. Finally, in 2007, Husband number five died. The state of Georgia opened an investigation, but no foul play was found. After all of that, that last husband's son died by suicide, and Betty 
she was the named beneficiary of the $10,000 insurance policy. But out of nowhere, it was husband number four who brought Betty down. His brother opened a cold case revealing that she hired hitmen to kill him. And that investigation revealed that Betty had many identities and secret bank accounts and credit cards, not to mention passports. Thing is, Betty was an old woman by the time of that investigation. She was riddled with cancer, and she died a decade ago at the age of 79. Shisako Kakehi. They called her the Black Widow of Kyoto, arguably Japan's most famous woman serial killer. Accused of killing up to six men for insurance money. And the alleged take? Seven million dollars from seven men who she either married or just dated. Reported causes of death included stroke, cancer, a motorcycle crash, and even unknown. Many of the men were much older than her. Later police investigations uncovered evidence of poisonings, cyanide, slipped into drinks. Eventually she confessed, well, to some of them. And then there's Mary Elizabeth Wilson, the Mary Widow of Windy Nook. Between 1955 and 1957, Wilson buried four husbands. Some of the marriages lasted weeks. One marriage lasted 12 days. Every time, Wilson was the beneficiary of her husband's estate. Besides, you know, death, Wilson was also known for her sharp wit. Once a friend asked her what to do with the extra sandwiches and cakes at one of her multiple weddings, her reply? We'll keep them for the funeral. Wilson received a death sentence in 1958. Later, a court cut this sentence back to life in prison. The Mary Widow lasted four years there before she died at the age of 70. It's a gruesome club. Does Suzanne Stordock belong in it? People close to Suzanne Stordock, even people who just met her in the years after Vern's death, paint a very, very different picture of her. Suzanne made some people's lives better. My name is Colleen Jensen, and I am from Hopkins, Minnesota. The leafy suburb of Hopkins is older than Minnesota itself. Settlers established it on high ground near Minnehaha Creek, an area dotted with lakes and farms and, for a while, raspberries. It's a picture book place, and Colleen is a relentlessly positive person. The first word I'd use to describe her is capable. We talked while she was taking care of several children, which she does from her home. She's now in her 60s. It's hard to imagine her suffering a difficult time, but she found herself in a spot a little over 30 years ago. Colleen needed a lawyer, and she didn't know any, so she opened a phone book, you know, made out of paper. We had yellow pages back then. This was like in 1989 or 1990. Lawyers. She ran her finger down a page. She could have picked anyone at that time, four out of every five lawyers in that phone book were men. And I saw her name, Sue Brandon, uh, attorney, you know, family court attorney of law, and I called her. It took Colleen a little time to do it. 
I was in a marriage that I had decided needed to end for the protection emotionally and mostly financially, too, of myself and my two children. But in 1992, she picked up a phone and dialed. Suzanne Brandon herself answered. So Colleen told Sue her problem. And just kind of told her my situation. And she very, very kindly turned me down because her son, her and Paul's son, had just passed away from throwing up and and then he aspirated. The son who had died was Danny, the slight, sensitive boy we've talked about before, whose birth father was Irv Gast and who had been adopted by Vern Stordock. Danny had been a beneficiary on Vern Stordock's life insurance. Then he had grown up, traveled a little, and returned to Madison, Wisconsin, where he worked as a nursing assistant. At age 32, he was found in his apartment. He had overdosed. Morphine, codeine, and other drugs, enough to kill him several times over. So they had a death in their family, and they were devastated, of course. So we kept talking a little bit anyway, and I said, well, you know, if you change your mind, Sue, I promise you I, will, I won't give you any trouble. Colleen thought she might have to keep looking. But then the woman lawyer called her back. So she thought about it for a little bit, and she called me back, and she said, I've decided to take your case on. Suzanne Brandon's family law practice centered on cases just like Colleen Jensen's. She helped people out of bad marriages, bad family situations. Colleen can't say enough about how that changed her life. So first of all, for her to do that for me in the time of her life when she was grieving was amazing, amazing to me. And she was patient and kind and fair. I never felt like she was trying to delay anything for more money, ever, ever, ever did I feel that way with her. She was wonderful. As a divorce uh, attorney, she was amazing. Colleen and Suzanne became friends, real, equal friends. On paper, they were pretty different. Colleen Jensen was in her 30s. Suzanne was twice that old. Colleen was Christian. She didn't know much about Judaism until Suzanne told her about her faith. Colleen said Suzanne loved to spend her day with her nose in a book. She had a nine-foot-tall library wall of them, whereas Colleen was taking care of kids and their dirty diapers. So we decided that we both dealt with SHIT in a different way. She did it in the legal system, and I did it for real, you know? That was another thing they shared, a love of laughter. Suzanne's daughter, Donna, remembers that about her mother, too. She had- she had a great, uh, wry, sarcastic sense of humor. If there was a smart aleck remark to be made, she'd make it. <laughs> when Suzanne left Wisconsin, she left the name Stordock behind. In the Twin Cities at the University of Minnesota, Suzanne Brandon earned a law degree and a doctorate in sociology. And even before she finished that second degree, she had started teaching at the College of St. Catherine in St. Paul, also known as St. Kate's. An undergraduate newspaper there called The Wheel published profiles of women leaders in the late 1990s, right around when Suzanne won a teaching award. Some might call her Wonder Woman, 
including Suzanne Brandon. For a woman who has run for the Minnesota State Legislature, is a professor of sociology, a practicing lawyer, and mother of six children, Suzanne Brandon is nothing short of amazing. The reporter sketches in a lot of details of Suzanne's story that you haven't heard yet. Like after Vern's death, Suzanne returned to school full-time in 1972. Danny, her youngest, was still in high school. She graduated from the University of Wisconsin at Madison with a bachelor's and a master's at the same time. Her love for learning and her drive to work constantly to reach her dreams is clear when listening to her talk and teach. Over a dozen years at St. Kate's, Suzanne said she noticed that students have more responsibilities. She offered advice about how to cope with the challenges of juggling family with career goals. Once you have made the decision, remove as many excess demands and expectations placed upon you. Work hard and face your decision. Change intellectually during your journey, but don't change who your being is. Most of all, keep in mind that you are doing something for yourself, and you deserve it. Suzanne had been a single mother on and off. She told the student reporter she noticed that more young women were single moms. After her divorce, Colleen Jensen was too. She says Suzanne was supportive of her as a woman raising two boys alone. She was really supportive of me as a mom. I had two very bright children, and uh, one of them being a genius, my oldest one. By the way, Colleen had sons named Dan and David too. And she would say to me, I know it's hard to deal with them. I know it's hard, and it's because they're so smart that, that they're... Your parenting skills have to be pretty tight, you know? And they did, and she was so good about that. Suzanne wasn't alone anymore, though. She had met her fifth husband. She called him the keeper. But she said something about her rabbi introduced them, said to both of them, Paul, I've got somebody you need to meet. And Sue, I have somebody you need to meet. And uh, that rabbi was was right on the button because they were amazing together. They were an amazing couple. Paul Slayton was an optometrist and widower. As the Holocaust descended on Austria, he fled. Part of an organized rescue effort that put young Jewish children on trains to safer parts of Europe. Well, um, he, uh, he escaped from Vienna on the kinder transport when he was about 14, 15. Suzanne's daughter, Donna. Paul was never able to uh, find his parents again, although um, he did um, manage to get visas to them uh, so they could leave Vienna. But unfortunately, the Nazis had commandeered their apartment by the time the visas arrived and never forwarded them. So he had this great sorrow that really matched my mom's great sorrow. Suzanne had told Donna she would never have another husband. Paul changed her mind. She was terrified to get married again. And, um, and then finally, when she realized she cared about him, they lived in Minnesota at the time, so they went for a walk around Lake Calhoun, and she disclosed to him her entire past. And he responded, Sue, it's time you had a good husband. And for the next 30 years, maybe not quite 30, but for the rest of her life, until he passed, he was wonderful. And I loved him dearly. He was a great stepfather. And they became kindred spirits in understanding the tragedies of life and 
how to build out of that, away from that, to make something positive and good instead of the horror of things that can happen to us. Donna says Paul supported Suzanne in everything. In Hopkins one year at the Raspberry Festival, he was elected senior king. She was not elected queen, and Donna remembers that Paul cried. And he supported Suzanne in her political career. In 1986, Suzanne Brandon ran for the Minnesota House of Representatives, District 44A. Sue Brandon is the kind of candidate who will answer the tough questions. Elect Sue Brandon, state representative. District 44A needs the balanced leadership and understanding that a candidate like Sue Brandon offers. Paid for by Brandon Volunteers Committee, Paul Slayton, treasurer. The ads featured a smiling Sue Brandon and Dr. Paul Slayton. She was endorsed by the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the Hennepin County Women's Political Caucus, and many, many more. In Minnesota newspapers, candidate Sue Brandon shared some of her political views. We need new ideas about how to deal with the problems facing us. Problems like job creation, senior care, the environment, welfare, taxes, and business. On the environment, Suzanne argued that polluters should pay for their own mess. That still doesn't happen. I'm really sick of hearing how awful this state is to do business in. Minnesota is by far the best place in the Midwest to do business. I have both the background and the education to deal with the issues that need the most attention. I have a law degree. I have extensive experience in business, and I expect to earn my PhD in sociology this summer. I would hope that I could offer some special input into the areas of criminal justice. Suzanne did not win that election. She also didn't reveal her past to voters. What had happened with Vern Stordock inside that house in Oregon, Wisconsin? To register as a lawyer in Minnesota, Suzanne had disclosed the crime and the circumstances around it to state regulators. But going public was a riskier matter. Suzanne did consider that risk and the impact it might have on her daughter, Donna. She had to have my okay, and that surprised me. Donna says her mother called before deciding to campaign. They sought her out and asked her to run. And she said, well, do you, uh, do you think I should? And I said, well, Mom, that would be entirely your choice. She said, but, you know, the past may come out. And even though I've been before the bar and disclosed it and they've investigated and I'm, I've been passed, it still is uh, something that could hurt you if it comes out. And I said, Mom, it's your story. And I'll deal with it. If it comes out, it'll be okay. Donna confirms that Paul knew about Suzanne's past, but it's likely that few other people in Minnesota did. I never went around and told my my friends, hey, my mom shot and killed one of her husbands. You know, why would you do that? That's not the subject of polite conversation. During their friendship, Colleen Jensen never knew about Vern Stordock. I didn't know about it until after she died. And uh, it makes me honor her even more to pick herself up and do something with her life like she did was, she had a, a, a gentleness to her and also a strength that would awe you to just be in her presence. 
that was, I wish you could have met her. When she spoke to the student reporter at St. Kate's, Suzanne talked about women's rights. She said, we've made a lot of progress, but there's a lot of work needing to be done. As a feminist, Brandon defines her position as being and becoming aware of gender inequalities and the effect that inequality has on women and men. Brandon strongly believes that feminism is still a necessary component of our society. And according to Donna, she showed that in her clothing and walked that in an early version of a protest that has since exploded. But it was called Take Back the Night, and it was um, women marching against abuse uh, on the streets of Minnesota to to say, take back the night of terror and abuse. Um, She used to have a sweatshirt she wore all the time from that with take back the night. You know, we don't give in to the darkness that tries to oppress us. We take it back and we set up a good life, a positive life. And, you know, overcoming abuse is, is tough. It's not easy. Donna says when her mother met Vern Stordock, Suzanne was hoping for a change from husbands who cheated on her, who abandoned her, and who treated her children poorly. Suzanne was hoping for protection. Instead, Donna says she found the opposite. And Donna has her own thoughts about what happened that night in 1970 in that grand house in Oregon. She doesn't believe that the shooter was her brother David. I've read that she made my brother do anything. I know he didn't do it. He hated her for killing Vern. Vern was the only dad I've ever known. Now you've taken him away from me. And it took years for them to make peace. And if I hadn't moved to Tennessee, they never would have. Because Dave really identified with Vern. Somehow we're right back in Tennessee with the third person who had been in the house the night of Vern Stordock's murder. David, who told people he was the trigger man. David, who Dorothy said fell in love with her. David, who knew the truth about that cold night in 1970. Late in 2014, that's who Dorothy got a call from. David, the only person other than Suzanne who really knew what happened on the night of Vern's murder. Yes, he called me, well, he emailed me and said, He had to talk. He had to talk because he had to tell me things. And, you know, the only time I was so busy, and the only time I had was like 9 p.m. on Sunday or night, or maybe it was 8 p.m. And he said, I want to talk about God, and I want to talk about Vern. And I said, well, it's too late. I'm tired. Let's skip the God. Let's just talk about Vern. So we started talking about the murder and what happened that night, and I was asking him questions about um, blood splatters, his mother had blood splatters on her. And and I, I started to ask him more questions about the murder. And then he just flipped out. He started going, Dorothy, 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 you don't know how traumatic it was for me and my mom that night. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. And I thought, gosh, I can't continue this. He's going to flip out. He's going through some PTSD thing. So I said, David, let's continue this conversation. I'm leaving for Germany tomorrow, for Berlin, and I'll call you when I get back. And Dorothy ended the call. To this day, I regret it. It just pains me. We were getting close. I really cared for him. That was the last time Dorothy and David ever spoke. I mean, how could I know 
that I wasn't going to be able to talk to him when I got back. I mean, I was in Berlin. Three days later, I got an email from Donna saying that David was dead. The shaggy-haired boy who at 17 had his life changed by one gunshot. David died in another house in eastern Tennessee, a house he shared with his mother, Suzanne. And yes, Dorothy has a theory. Next on Manslaughter. I just feel sadness about the lack of justice and also the fact that after he died, she claimed that he'd abused her. The one who lives gets to tell the story. Manslaughter is produced by Bill Franzblau, who also supervised the music. Marty Scott is the writer. Dorothy Marsick is the co-host and author of the book With One Shot. Executive producers are Bill Franzblau, Dorothy Marsick, Marty Scott, and Molly Peterson. Gregory T. Smith and the Oregon Historical Society provided research. Sarah Kalin is a forensic consultant. Shannon Stordach-Hecht is a story consultant. Actors who recreated voices include Jacob Behrens, Charlie Ray, Jeff Wisniewski, Dan Fishman, Tamara Erickson, Kirsten Rodow, Robert Smythe, Steve Travis, Gary Berg, Brady Gonsalves, Buck Scherner, and Chris Sapienza. Nick Cortides is the sound designer and engineer. Martin Cadillo provided original music scoring and engineering. Additional engineering by Sergio Enriquez at Wondery. Tony Bruno produced and arranged songs that Danielle Harris sang. For the music, special thanks to Clearcut Incorporated, John Fry and Barb Hall, Warner Chapel Music, Sony ATV Music, Spirit Music, Abco Music, Fabulous Music, Round Hill, Carlin, BMG, and all the amazing people at Wondery. I'm your host and co-writer, Molly Peterson. <laughs> <laughs>